You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the July edition of the JNNP podcast. My name is Karin Pikama and I will be your guest host once more. In this edition, I will be talking to Dr. Alan Carson about how sense of well-being is affected in those neurology outpatients who have organically unexplained neurological symptoms. 50% of the patients were actually in work and economically contributing. And I don't think that's the stereotype that many clinicians um, have in their mind. But first, Harriet will be talking to Dr. Paul Geiler about the use of intravenous thrombolysis in acute ischemic stroke patients over 80. Here's Harriet. Intravenous thrombolysis is the only emergency curative treatment available for acute ischemic stroke. Alteplase is the drug license for this treatment, but only in those under 80. Dr Paul Geiler from Southend Hospital NHS Trust has a review and meta-analysis in JNMP this month, looking at the evidence so far on whether or not this age group should receive alteplase, and he joins me on the line now. So, hello Paul, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you very much. Um, Tell me, why is alteplase only licensed for patients up to to 80 years old, particularly when we see uh, around 30% of patients who have an acute ischemic stroke are actually over 80? Well, the main reasons for withholding treatment from this very elderly patient group is the worry that the older patients get, the more likely they are to uh, do poorly or have an increased risk of hemorrhage and, and death. And because of that, there will be an almost a complete lack of randomised evidence in patients over the age of 80. Um, in fact, there have only been 42 patients included in thrombolysis trials up to date before IST3, um, mainly because of the 80-year-old age limit in the ECAS studies. And because they've been excluded from these randomised trials, they're also excluded from the drug licence. And, and the ISTs that... The International Stroke Trial 3, is that right? Yes, that's right. Okay, great. So it's ethical issues, really, that are preventing um, patients from being recruited into RCTs, is that it? Um, possibly, but I think it's more more concerns from the people setting up the trials initially that this group of patients would may do worse and skew the figures for the rest of the, for the, rest of the population for oh, the drug okay. that is being tried. Sure. And, and with the, the off-licence use, so clinicians still going ahead and, and using it for patients over 80, how, how widespread do you think this is? Well, I think it's becoming more widespread as thrombolysis becomes um, used on a more regular basis across the UK. Um, currently, currently, we've got three options. We can either uh, not treat this group of patients, we can randomise them into a clinical trial like IST3, or we can treat them outside the licence um, with the thrombolysis drug. The problem we've got is that IST3 finishes recruiting on the 30th of June this year. So mm. by the end of the month, we're going to be left with a situation where, for these patients, we can either treat them off licence or not treat them at all. And as you say, given that 30% of patients with strokes are age over 80, um, this is going to re- represent a major problem for stroke physicians. Um, there's already a, a wide variability across the country um, because of lack of data and clinical uncertainty about um, whether pa- some groups of patients should be given thrombolysis or not. For example, at Southend, we 
give thrombolysis to about 20% of patients with acute ischemic stroke. Mm. But across the east of England, it's nearer 8.5%. So either other places need to be giving more or perhaps ourselves less. And this is part of the problem we've got. Right, so do you think there's a need for for stronger guidelines then to, to advise clinicians on, on, on when to give thrombolysis? Well, I, th- I think what we need is stronger randomised control evidence uh, and that's what we're hoping to get from the RST3 trial as, as one of them, as part of them, to help guide us. Um, but that's why with this in mind we took this project on to try and help patients and colleagues until randomised controlled trial evidence is available. One of the big adverse possible effects with this drug is is hemorrhage. However, um, when you looked at the the cohort studies that have been done so far, you found that patients over 80 didn't have an increased risk of this compared to those under 80. How how sure can you be of this, considering that they're just cohort studies? And what do you make of this finding? Well, I think this is probably the most important finding um, of of our paper, um, especially in view of the VISTA trial, which was which was published after this database search. Mm. Um, the VISTA trial um, has shown that patients over the age of 80 do significantly better uh, compared to those who don't receive thrombolysis. So I think the idea that thrombolysis um, should and shouldn't be given um, has been partly helped by the VISTA trial. And this backs up the findings in VISTA as well regarding interstitial hemorrhage not being as much of a problem. The biggest problem we've got in this paper um, on estimating the effect on interstitial hemorrhage um, is because it's got a low power because there are different definitions across studies and also only a small number of events of interstitial hemorrhage happening. If we're honest, the confidence intervals are quite wide, so we can't exclude either a small reduction or increase in the instance of interstitial hemorrhage overall. But regardless of the two different definitions, there's no significant difference noted amongst the two groups. And backed up by VISTA, I think this is very reassuring. I think the other problem we've got is the problem of selection bias, mm. because it's not unreasonable to suppose that... Um, patients in this study and probably patients in real life that are receiving treatment off license have this kind of bias where only the elderly patients who are particularly healthy or suitable are entered in the study cohort or treated whereas those in the younger age group may be selected less carefully um, with their Mm -hmm. comorbidities so that may help mask an increased risk for the total old, older age group for interstitial hemorrhage if it does exist. Okay. So that's why we need the randomised controlled trial results. Hopefully, IST3 will give us the answer now it's coming to the end. Um, I think the most important thing is is what we do in the meantime for, for these patients. And I think with this uh, review and with VISTA showing that there, there was not a significantly higher rates of symptomatic interstitial hemorrhage in their over 80 group either in in a very large number of patients. Mm. Um, I think that's reassuring for a body of consultants who are going to have to make difficult decisions without randomised controlled trial evidence. So what would be your advice to clinicians faced with an elderly patient who's just suffered an ischemic stroke? Well, 
my practice is I think the most important thing is that we have to um, go and assess the patient ourselves quickly and then discuss the options with the family and the patient for those, especially for these patients who are chronologically older but biologically seem a lot younger than the years that they are. And I think given the results of this and the results of the VISTA trial, we can be saying that having a good outcome uh, of under 80, you've got a high odds at 90 minutes, which reduces up to three hours. In the over 80s, this is likely to be lower, but still around one in four patients who receive thrombolysis will be fully independent at three months. Um, now, if looking at the VISTA study, they would suggest that you've got a 33% chance of having a good outcome um, if modified ranking score of 0 to 2 with treatment and a tw only a 20% chance if you get control. So I think there's good evidence to say what the benefits are. And the risks, I think we can say, the risk of spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage, which is the most feared complication, is likely to be around 2.4% um, in these carefully selected patients over 80, which is similar to the risk of patients under the age of 80. I think at least then they're able to make the best choice for them about whether they feel that this is not a license indication, but it may benefit them and they want, to, they want us to give it to them, or whether they would rather be treated in the usual way with best care, but not the thrombolytic drug. Fantastic. Well, hopefully that will help some clinicians who are um, still quite unsure about this treatment and, and when to use it. Well, I think all we can do is treat people on an individual basis. And I think if people have very severe concerns and they, they will decide not to um, treat people until uh, the trial evidence is out. But in the meantime, I think it's, it will at least enable people to have a discussion um, to treat patients the best we can in the meantime. Great. Well, well thanks very much, Paul, for, for coming on and, and telling us about your paper. Thanks very much. That was Dr. Paul Geiler from South End Hospital NHS Trust. The VISTA paper Paul referred to, that's the Virtual International Stroke Trials Archive, has recently been published in the BMJ and is authored by Nishant Mishra et al. Links to this, and also to Paul's paper, are available on the podcast page, or at bmj.com and jnmp.bmj.com, respectively. Both are open access. One in three neurology outpatients experience neurological symptoms that cannot be explained organically. However, their sense of ill health is often very real, and according to a study in this month's JNNP, they are more likely to blame unemployment on ill health and claim more benefits compared to those patients whose symptoms are explained organically. I am joined by Dr. Alan Carson of the Division of Clinical Neuroscience at the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh to discuss his findings. Hello, Alan. Hello. What are the kinds of things that we should be thinking of when we're talking about such unexplained neurological symptoms? Well, this group of patients have been recognised for a very long time and they present with a range of neurological symptoms which cover almost all forms of neurological presentation. So we get things like unexplained paralysis, we get unexplained seizures, we get unexplained pain syndromes, unexplained fatigue syndromes, 
and a, a range of other things. Almost every bodily disease one can think of, one can get a functional variant that presents in, in a similar but different fashion. The etiology of the pain has been a highly controversial topic. There is undoubtedly a strong link to psychiatric distress and patients with these symptoms have roughly doubled the rates of neurotic spectrum psychiatric conditions, so that's things like panic disorder or depression, than other neurological patients with equivalent disability. So it would seem to imply that there is some strong etiological connection. Over more recent years, there have been a number of um, studies using cognitive experiments and using um, functional imaging paradigms that have started to give clues to a role of brain dysfunction, perhaps some alterations in top-down processing mechanisms that lead to the symptom formation in this group. But the reality is it remains a mystery to the current day. And and, and what do you think that means for those patients? Well, well I, th I think this is one of the, the, the key sensitivities. Of course, there is something physically wrong in the sense that if you cannot walk because your leg's paralyzed, that, that is a physical deficit. Um, it, it is, it's a question of mechanism. And of course, from the patient's perspective, all too often the suggestion the problem is functional or in some way psychogenic is viewed as tantamount to saying that it's imagined or made up. And for somebody whose life's been dramatically altered by such a symptom, it can obviously be perceived very hurtful or, or indeed very rude. Um, and if one takes the totality of evidence that exists, it is almost certainly wrong as well as an assumption. Right, and and so you d you did already there and in the previous answer sort of allude to uh, psychological or psychiatric uh, disturbances. Mm -hmm. Do you think they they might actually play um, quite a large role because um, you know psych psychiatric disturbances can can have very physical effects? I I, th I think there's no doubt at all if one looks at both the risk factors for getting, say, a functional paralysis are very similar to the risk factors for developing a depressive illness or developing an anxiety disorder. But I think it is a mistake to think of these disorders simply as depression or anxiety. We need to be thinking of that as only part of the explanation and that other processes are almost certainly going to be involved. Um, so now I want to get on to your methods briefly. Um, you recruited patients via the major neurological clinics in Scotland and um, then you divided the patients up into two groups, uh, one explained group and one unexplained group, um, and you compared the two. Um, both of the groups had the same level of unemployment, say 50%, um, but what was really striking about this re these results was um, that of the unexplained patients, 26% blamed their inability to work on their symptoms, whereas in the group with explained symptoms, that was only 18%. Why do you think that was? Well, I, I think if you just look at it in a very straightforward fashion, um, the patients um, in the unexplained groups reported roughly similar rates of physical disability. So if you ask them, you know, can you climb a flight of stairs, you got rough parity across all the, 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 the organicity groups from the study. 
But if you were looking at things like does your mental state affect you from socialising or affect you participating in the workplace, they had a much higher rate. So in, in, in simple quantitative terms, their disability burden in total was higher and therefore you would expect increasing rates um, in terms of economic correlates of disability, such as not attending work or receiving disability benefits. So one, one could say at that level that there's no great surprise. But in some ways, almost the more interesting finding to me was the, the, the reverse of that finding, that 50% of the patients were actually in work and economically contributing. And I don't think that's the stereotype that many clinicians um, have in their mind. I think people often tend to think of, 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 of this group as always out, out of work, but in fact, actually, that, that there, are, there are many more who are in work than actively claiming benefits. So in relation to what you just said, I was wondering whether things like socioeconomic status or social class or even levels, or levels of education um, may have an influence on these findings. It, it, it does, but again, in a sense, the more interesting finding is how little an influence it actually has. So the, 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 there is no doubt that the group of patients who get these disorders at an epidemiological level are slightly younger, there's a slight excess of females, and there's a slight excess of lower social classes. But actually, these findings are are very non-specific. You know, you, you can see them in large epidemiological studies and they must be of some relevance. But the reality is, in fact, and again, as comes from the study, is that, you know, a very large proportion of men get these disorders. You get them at all ages. Um, you know, they still present with first episodes in the elderly, etc. And, and in fact, it's, it's the fact that this is a disorder that all groups get. So finally... Um your results, uh, so, so your, your results show that um, it's not just that those people are the worried well, but they have sort of like a real um, sense of disability and distress. And you suggest that it's important to focus our attention on this group um, so that we can come up with interventions. What, what do you think such uh, interventions need to entail and are you working on such interventions? Yes, for, for all neurologists, um, this is going to be one of the largest parts of their clinical practice. Very simple measures, for instance, uh, 20 years ago, a, a classic interaction might have been to say, you know, I can tell you, we're happy to tell you there's nothing neurologically wrong with you. But actually, if you've got a leg that's paralyzed, that's not a reassuring message at all. So just encouraging people to give a a positive diagnosis in the way of saying, you know, I've looked at this, this is something I've commonly seen, you know, we call these functional symptoms, in the way that explains what is wrong, it can be a very good starting point. There is evidence that certain drug treatments can be of benefit, and there's an increasing evidence base for psychological therapies. The one we're particularly interested in is cognitive behavioural therapy. We, we know that if you're going to get better, you're likely to do so within six months of your contact neurologist and those who don't, the symptoms tend to be very prolonged so that there is a real need for treatment. And one of the things we're interested in is trying to look and see if we can do manualized and computer provided cognitive behavioral therapy that will allow an early, quick treatment for the majority of patients. And we've uh, 
just finished some MRC-sponsored trials looking at that that have shown that that may well be a successful model that could be adopted on a wider scale. That was Dr. Alan Carson. His article is this month's Patient's Choice and can also be downloaded for free at bmj.jnnp.com. Well, that was it for this month. Join us again next time for more from the world of neurology, neurosurgery and psychiatry. Thanks for listening. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.